Good morning everybody. Welcome to our sermon for today, the 6th of September. This week we're beginning a new series of sermons working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It is perhaps the most joyful of all Paul's letters, made more remarkable by the fact that he was in prison in Rome when he wrote it, held in chains, probably chained to a Roman guard day and night amidst a very slow legal system, awaiting a trial that would determine whether he would live or die. Amazingly, though, Paul carries on his ministry. Hence, we have his letters, and of course, as a good evangelist, everyone he spoke to got to hear the good news about the Lord Jesus. So how had he got into this position? It all began four and a half years earlier in Jerusalem, when he was arrested on false charges. You can read about this in Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 36. Eventually, after lots of mini-trials, as it were, it was decided to send Paul to Rome. His journey included beatings, a shipwrecking, being bitten by a snake, not being given enough food or water, generally a pretty miserable time by all accounts. And 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four to 28 tells you more. Hard as it is to conceive, even some of the Christians in and around Rome became jealous of Paul's influence and set themselves up as rivals. All in all, it was a pretty sorry time. Paul was a political hot potato. His general notoriety and undoubted boldness in every aspect of life made it very costly to be seen as a friend or a companion of his. By the time he writes to the Philippians, many had abandoned him because of the consequences of being his friend. When all of this, it seems to me that Paul had perhaps more reason than anyone else in all church history to be miserable, downcast, discouraged, plain fed up. So how on earth does he write this letter which really makes clear that his heart and mind are full of rejoicing regardless? Life for him was dark and dismal to say the least. Recent months in our time have been dark and dismal as the world has faced and continues to face the trauma of a deadly pandemic with all the knock-on effects that is having. Economic difficulties, travel chaos, mental well-being issues, etc, etc. Our daily lives are already more fast-paced, hectic and full of stress than is good for us, but for many this has just increased even more. One commentator wrote, Real joy is a rare commodity in civilised Western culture. And sadly that is even true in the church. I suspect we need more than ever before the message that Paul gave to the church at Philippi. Well, don't get me wrong, there are some rebukes, some corrections and some warnings in the letter, but somehow it always returns to the message of joy. Isn't it incredible that after and amidst all his suffering, Paul allows such joy to dominate his heart and mind. Does it help explain his unflagging faithfulness, his far-reaching influence and his remarkable resilience? I think so, and I hope it's infectious. Writing letters back then was a little different to today. For a start, the signature went right at the beginning instead of at the end where we would put it. Right from the very first word, the Philippians know that this letter is from their old friend Paul and his young companion Timothy. Paul describes themselves as servants of Jesus. In fact, the Greek word is doulos, which is more like slave. 
Slaves were of an even lower position than servants, who were often hired for a particular project or a period of time, but when that ended they would be free to go. In the first century a servant might even have a few possessions of their own, but a slave wouldn't. Indeed, they were a possession. A slave was entirely dependent on their master to provide for all their needs. They couldn't travel anywhere without their master's consent. Their entire life was lived to just please their master, their owner. And Paul says that he is like this as far as Jesus is concerned. This is whom he serves. This is whom his life is lived for. The chief aim of Paul's life was to please the Lord Jesus. And as believers in Jesus, we are designated as slaves too. But he is the very best master we could ever have, as he freely provides everything we could possibly need to live life well. It's a very high calling to a very lowly position, you might say. Paul then identifies to whom he is writing. All God's holy people. Some translations use the word saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. These three words, in Christ Jesus, are really important in this sentence. Paul is reminding the believers that at one time they were not like this, they were not believers. They lived the raucous life of the Roman colony with its anti-God agenda. Now, however, they are people who follow Jesus, who are in communion with him, citizens of the kingdom of God. In Christ Jesus makes all the difference to who they are now. I wonder if you've ever thought about this, as one of God's holy people, a saint. What is different about your life to others? What do you pursue in life, and what do you avoid? The believers in Philippi had lots to avoid, and they would have stood out as very different people to the rest of society. Just take a moment to look back into Acts 16, and read again the story of the demon-possessed slave girl, and the problems caused caused by setting her free from that demon brings a question do we stand out enough as believers of Jesus do you think Paul also recognizes the leaders of the church in his greeting the overseers and the deacons these would have been men and women leading the church and seeing to the spiritual and physical needs of all the believers Paul might be mentioning them as a reminder that they too need to read and understand the letter just as much as the ordinary believer in fact, probably even more. He then continues with his familiar greeting, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his desire for his friends. He could not want anything more. Combining the Greek grace and the Jewish shalom, Paul somehow manages to reflect the intersection of both cultures in just three small words, as he endeavours to fulfil his calling to bring the gospel to the Gentiles even though he's a Jew himself. In the midst of this greeting is the promised abundant supply of God to meet all our needs all the time. Remember, though, that this doesn't happen automatically. We have to ask for it. We need to set our hearts and minds on God, study his word and live in close fellowship with him. Imagine back then, then just how radical this would have been for all those who lived in a Roman colony that was like living in Rome itself. They were not taxed as much as others in other places. They would speak Latin, they would dress like Romans, they would eat like Romans, they would party like Romans. Making the decision to follow Jesus would not have been easy back then. Just like for many around the world, it still isn't today. 
as they face persecution of all kinds for their faith. Paul then continues on into the body of his letter. He had first met the people in Philippi ten years before he writes. They were important to him. He had cared for them as a minister for some time, and his affection for them had grown. He planted other churches, true, but it seems that this one was somewhat special. And the next nine verses contain perhaps some of the most essential aspects of Paul's care for other believers, that the, he wants the Philippians and us to understand and copy before he goes on with his letter. This is what he has. First, a thankful heart. Paul reveals his grateful heart in verse 3, even though it is such a long time since he has seen the Philippians. He says he is offering prayers for them, verse 4. We call this intercession, praying to God on behalf of others. Paul is praying specifically for the Philippians, holding them before God. Such a thankful heart in intercessory prayer for other believers should surely characterise each one of us. It can be too easy to be diverted in our prayers, especially when we find ourselves in troubled times. But this kind of selfless praying is actually very good for us, as it takes our gaze from ourselves and refocuses it to others. Then he has a joyful spirit. I always pray with joy, Paul says in verse 4. The message translation says, I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. It's hard to believe that it's an imprisoned man writing this, isn't it? You could picture a man attending a party with friends rather than one chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. This joy can only surely be that fruit of the spirit that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. It is evidence of a deep gladness in the heart that knows that all is well in the Lord. This is just dependent on being in good times. It copes with bad times too. Over these last six months of the pandemic, I wonder how our joy in the Lord has fared. Joy is going to be a major theme in this letter. Joy, kara in Greek, is used four times in chapter four, 1 verse 4, 1 verse 25, 2 verse 2 and chapter 4 verse 1. And rejoice, Cairo in Greek, eight times, chapter 1 verse 18 twice, chapter 2 verse 17 and verse 18, chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 4 verse 4 twice and chapter 4 verse 10. As one commentator puts it, do we know the gladness that rises above adverse circumstances or are there some things that are quenching our spiritual zest at the moment? Maybe we need to refocus on the Lord and experience again that joy that only he can give us. I suspect that our joy runs deepest when we are listening and talking to God. So do we need to refocus our prayer somehow? Paul also has a gospel focus. His next aspect of care for people is his unwavering gospel focus. Even though he is confined and chained, he's desperate to spread the message of salvation to those who don't know it. In fact, he doesn't see his imprisonment as a hindrance, but just another opportunity. And despite what has happened to him, he remembers with fond memories the partnership he has shared with the Philippians for the gospel. Being partners means sharing something with others. Paul sees himself in partnership with the Philippians as they continue to share the gospel. Our Resource Church partnership of the same is of the same kind, 
together with Emmanuel Church and St Barnabas, we are working to help the 93% of people who don't know Jesus to have the chance to know him. Even though we're doing this in different parts of our parishes, we are working together for the same goal. We are members together of the body of Christ in this place at this time. In fact, we're in the same boat, engaged in the same work, no matter who we are, what language we speak, wherever we live, what experiences we have had. If we believe in Jesus as our Saviour and Lord, we are to reach the four corners of the world with the Gospel. Paul also has a confident hope. In verse 6, we see that Paul's love for them brings confidence in his friends in Philippi. He is sure that they are genuinely following Christ and therefore is assured of their future. He is reminded of when he first preached to them, I expect, and how he saw God open up their hearts to believe in Jesus. Paul knows that God will complete what he has started. I am reminded of the hymn, Amazing Grace, that last verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. As a believer, we can each be as certain of being in heaven as though we've already been there 10,000 years. God finishes what he starts. Paul has an affectionate love too. I have you in my heart, he says in verse 7. But what does he mean? He has strong affection for them all because of their mutual salvation in Christ. He cares about them like they care about him actually, but more later in our series. He wants the very best for them in all things. Did you know that the word for affection in Greek literally means intestines or internal organs? Paul is trying to impress upon them how he cares for them in the very core of his being and he wants them to do the same for each other. This is more than tolerating someone's company. This is about enjoying their company, wanting to learn from them and share with them at every level. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul puts it like this. If we are without love, we are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love for others, regardless of how involved we are in Christian activities or how much of the Bible and its doctrines we might know, we are nothing. How many people have you helped to pull on their wellies? You might wonder why I've mentioned that. Well, in the written sermon, there is a picture here of Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh. Christopher Robin is putting on his wellies and Winnie the Pooh is sitting behind his back, supporting him so he can struggle to tug on the welly. Paul is a passionate prayer. He concludes his section of the letter with a specific prayer for his friends. And I think it gives us all a template for our own prayers. Paul often writes about praying for other believers at the beginning of his letters. You can see in Colossians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Ephesians. He suggests that the more we love God, the more we will find ourselves able to love others. Jesus thought this too, as he suggests obeying the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, is the key to keeping the second greatest Loving one's neighbour. Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40 help us think about that. Is this the best prayer that we can pray for someone? That their love for God and others would get deeper and deeper, do you think? 
Paul goes on to pray for wisdom for the Philippians so that they could care for one another in the absolute best ways possible. This would require them to be pure, sincere. Did you know that sincere comes from the words for son and judge? It was originally used to describe a piece of fine pottery that was judged in the light of the sun and found to be free of any cracks. Scrupulous merchants in ancient times would often conceal pottery cracks with wax, but held up to the sunlight, the wax was very obvious. Paul is praying for love which is real, for characters that don't crack under pressure for his Philippian friends, and therefore for us too as readers of his letter today. Throughout his opening words we have been glimpsing Paul's heart and he concludes it all with his highest desire for the Philippian spiritual lives, that their love for others would abound to the glory and praise of God, verse 11. Ultimately, he wants their whole life to give honour to God. But we're reading this letter today. It's in the Bible and so must be important for us too. I suggest that Paul might want the same for us as he does for his Philippian friends. So what might this look like then in our everyday lives? We could see it all as a checklist to help us see how God is developing our spiritual lives. But also we must recognise that this is not just for Sundays, but for every day of the week. Well, I hope that this has whetted your appetite for some study over the next few weeks. As we continue to look carefully at this letter, then let's keep in mind that Paul is offering his hearers and readers of this particular letter to discover joy afresh. Joy in our faith, joy in our church and joy in the world. Dare we let the pursuit and promotion of the glory of God become our all-consuming passion? Paul did. Dare we?